You're, You're listening, listening to the Thousand Hills Podcast. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Thousand Hills Podcast, where we seek to help mindful theology become powerful faith. Today we'll be continuing our series through the book of Romans with Romans chapter 6 and a message entitled, Redemption Leads to Freedom. We are now in the redemption portion of our Read Church series, and we've worked together through a major theme in the life of a Christian. We've talked all throughout the book of Romans about the fact that it is faith that saves us. When we put our faith in Jesus' sacrifice and in God's goodness, we receive grace. Now, grace is an undeserved and unearned gift. And in this case, that gift is Jesus stepping into our lives and paying our debt with his death on the cross. Usually that's kind of where we stop when we share the gospel, but in reality, there's another amazing after effect that comes when Jesus pays our debt. God can now bless us because we are no longer his enemies. We are washed of our sins and we are reconciled to God. The picture painted by the language used in Romans in the original Greek paints a picture of two parties meeting to discuss a disagreement and leaving having settled the disagreement and found a path to not only peace, but also to a powerful bond or an alliance. As Christians, we should understand that the death of Jesus changed everything for us, and that Jesus never asked us to be good enough to merit that change or to earn his love by being good enough. Last week, we read Romans chapter 5 verse 6 that said, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Paul has spent so much time telling us about how we are redeemed, but he now will talk with us about another change that takes place in our lives and what kind of actions that should provoke within our hearts. So today's message is entitled, Redemption Leads to Freedom. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Romans chapter 6, verse 1. It says this, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Paul begins this chapter by raising a question. And it's in response to him talking so much about grace, which again is totally unearned. Paul might be putting himself in the shoes of someone who is unsaved, or, and this is my personal theory, he's putting himself in the shoes of someone who's in a church, who has been a part of the church, but has been so wrapped up in following rules and trying to be good enough that when they are told that grace is their hope for salvation, their first question is, well, what's supposed to make me do the right things? In the heart of someone who's lived a life of trying to measure up to the expectations of the law or others around them, fear has always been the driving factor. I'm afraid that if I'm not good enough, that God will not love me or that I'll be not good enough to have my sins forgiven. And that's what drives me forward if I have this mindset. So if grace saves, what's to keep people from just sinning like there's no tomorrow? This question that Paul raises to me highlights the end result of that thinking that God may not love you if you're not good enough. And it stunts our spiritual growth when we think that way and the growth of our relationship with God. So Paul is going to explain how the redemption in our lives leads not only to freedom, but should inform us about how we should use our new freedoms, what kind of things we should be doing with our lives. So Romans chapter 6 verse 2, he gives a retort. He says, by no means, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? 
Paul is essentially answering a very, you know, old timey version of something that I've heard people say today. They say, well, if you don't sin, then Jesus died for nothing, right? And they kind of say that coyly to try to get you to react because they're saying, well, if Jesus died to pay for sins, then what's the point of not sinning? Why not just go ahead and abuse that grace? And it's honestly just really sad to see from some people. The disregard they have for the price that Jesus paid really shows through in that statement. And secondly, let's clarify what it means to live in sin, okay? It says that we cannot live in it any longer. This is not speaking of when you slip up or have a moment of weakness and get angry. This is not the Christian who's trying to overcome an addiction, but hasn't totally squashed a sin in their lives. This quote-unquote live-in term in the Greek is speaking of habitual sin, of living in sin without any real attempts or intention of stopping it. So if you forget to pray over your deep fried Twinkie you had at the fair last night, and now you feel convicted, I promise this isn't for you. Paul is trying to tell us that we don't avoid sin because we are afraid that God's grace and forgiveness won't be able to handle our sin, but rather we don't celebrate and love and live in a lifestyle of sin because we are supposed to be dead to it. And he's going to clarify what that means with the next few verses by using the imagery of baptism. In verses 3 through 4 of Romans 6, it says this, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We have therefore buried, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Do you know what the driving factor for someone to choose baptism is? Can you guys think of what the major thing that should cause us to move towards baptism in our lives should be? It's supposed to be obedience. Supposed to be obedience. Baptism is an exchange. Baptism is a restart that signals the end of one way of living and the beginning of another. This is what Paul is talking about when he says, we have died to sin. He means that we have made a conscious decision to change who we are, not based on fear, but in freedom. Baptism isn't supposed to be a forced action. We do not teach people here that they are not allowed into heaven if they don't get dunked in a pool of water. Baptism is a choice to signify that you are making the decision to change the direction in which your life is headed. It signifies that you are no longer going to only consider what you want out of life, but you are dedicated to following after Jesus and following the example his life sets. Baptism is not only for the holiest of the holies. Baptism is not an exclusive, deluxe, Amazon Prime version of Christianity. Baptism should be the natural next step in the life of someone who understands who Jesus is. This makes me think of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Baptism is a response to having a true experience with Jesus. If I know how much Jesus has forgiven me of, if I understand that Jesus loves me, even though he knows the worst parts of me, then I will be driven to my knees in worship of him, and I will dedicate my life to serving him because he is worthy of it. So if you've been looking for a sign to get baptized, there it is. Baptism is a beautiful picture that should mirror the commitment to God you feel in your heart. Continuing on in our text in verse 5, it says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. This word united means connected. 
The Greek word is actually a botanical term, meaning to graft a branch onto a tree. It wasn't originally a part of a tree, that sole branch, but now it is deeply connected and the life of the tree, it has an enormous impact on the life of the branch. If the tree perishes, the branch perishes. If the tree flourishes, then the branch will too. So what's the effect on our lives of being grafted into the spiritual tree? Well, the big first one is freedom. Verses six through seven say, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. The old us was a slave to sin and therefore we couldn't be a servant of God. The old us couldn't choose to do what God wanted us to do because the old us was ruled by sin. So we couldn't experience the new life of Christ until we first experienced death, just like he did, the death of who we had been. Sin is deceptive in the life of the unsaved. I heard a song that once summed it up very well unintentionally with a line that says, rattle your chains if you love being free. Now, let me ask you a question. Can I rattle chains around my wrists if I'm free? No. Can I rattle chains around my feet if I'm free? No. Sin in the life of the unbeliever is a slave master that has convinced people that they are free while they are in fact slaves. And I'll tell you how. People can very easily be convinced that since they desire to sin, but choose the sin they'd like to do, that they live totally in control of themselves. They think they're free. Yet if they were challenged with choosing to not sin at all for a day, do you think that they would make it? Do you think they would go through that day perfectly? No. Do you think that they would be able to deny their anger, their lust, or their jealousy? Do you think that they could just choose to be good and stop sinning? The answer is no. This is when sin shows what it truly is. It's not a recreational pastime. It's not a friend who's around when you need them. It's an addictive, manipulative owner of those who partake in it. So the first step for us in becoming a Christian is allowing God to give us that freedom by exchanging what we were for who Jesus wants to make us. The first step is a death, but it is not the last step. Verse eight says, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Verse 10, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Baptism begins with someone being submerged to signify death, but it ends with them being raised out of the water in a sign that a new life has begun. Verse 9 told us that Jesus died once and will not experience death any longer. And so too, we will mirror that spiritually when we are joined in Jesus' life. In our lives, there will be two kinds of death, physical and a spiritual death. A spiritual death is when someone dies and never made that exchange of their old self for the new one in Jesus. So their sins aren't washed away. And when they come before God on judgment day, they will be separated from him. If we are living in Jesus, however, then our sins are washed away and we will never experience that second death, only the first, that physical death. When Jesus died on the cross, sin and death lost their monopoly on humanity. And so too, 
When we experience that death of the old us, sin and death lose their grasps on our lives and we are made truly free. Paul warns us that we should be weary of surrendering that freedom. And in Romans 6 verses 12 through 13, he says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Paul tells us to steer clear of sin. It will lie to us and it will try to rob us of our freedom in Christ. Paul begins telling us not to let sin take hold of any part of our body. And I think there's two reasons for that. Number one, we often fall to sin through temptation. And that temptation comes to us through our eyes when we see and desire things we shouldn't have or through our ears which can hear gossip and grow an appetite for it, or hear insults and launch us into a sinful anger. That goes for touch, taste, comfort. Our body's ability to tempt us is huge. So we cannot allow sin to entice us through our senses. And number two, this also shows the tactic used by sin. It promises to honor boundaries Pet sins are a favorite way for the enemy to attack us because we feel like we are still in control. Yet soon enough, that pet sin, as we like to call it, grows into something fierce enough to devour us and subjugate us once again. Paul is saying, don't use your freedom to try to dictate to sin how much of it you can have. Don't give it an inch. He says, instead, use your freedom to serve God. Instead, use your time, your effort, your talents, etc., to be an instrument of righteousness. The heart of a Christian should cry out, Lord, how can I best love you? Not how much am I required to do in order to force you to forgive me? Finally, in verse 14, we see this. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Sin is no longer our motivating factor in life. The actions of a Christian should not be motivated by the thought of getting away with sin. The actions of a Christian should also not be motivated by trying to avoid sin out of fear of the law and that God will somehow not be able to forgive our sins. The actions, words, intentions of a Christian should all be motivated by the magnitude of the grace we have received through Jesus. That grace should drive us to use our freedom to serve God, to love God, and to deny sin. So when we started our message, we saw someone who didn't understand what God really gave us, or who really God was, in fact. So they asked the question, so why don't we sin if grace ensures that we will be forgiven? But after reading this, the question in our heart should be, why would I ever use my freedom to become a slave again? Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like to listen to more messages like this, you can find us on Spotify and iTunes by searching for Thousand Hills Podcast. Thank you for listening to and supporting this ministry of Thousand Hills Church.